it's Michael Chapdelaine, and we're here on All Strings Considered. I started, you know, with Beatles and Clapton and Hendrix. I converted in 1974 to be a classical guitarist, and the first GFA that I won, it was 82. My classical career sort of ended with the Segovia incident. Do you know about that? Hey everyone, and welcome back to All Strings Considered. I'm your host, Scott Wolf. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing you to classical and steel string guitarist and composer, Michael Chapdelaine. All Strings Considered is brought to you in part by Guitar Salon International, the world's largest selection of fine classical and flamenco guitars and accessories, and by audible.com. To get a free audiobook of your choice, go to audibletrial.com allstrings. There are over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Chapdelaine is the only person to have won both the GFA competition, as a matter of fact, the very first one, and the National Fingerstyle Championship. If you happen to see Chapdelaine live, you'll see him switch effortlessly between the steel string and the nylon, and hear a blend of his compositions, his killer arrangements of rock and roll classics like Come Together and Hit the Road Jack and classical pieces by composers like Roland Dianz, Leo Brouwer, Bach, Tariga, and lots more. On today's episode, you'll hear Mike's take on arranging for the solo guitar, about his impactful and perspective-changing run-in with Segovia, and overall, I think you'll get the sense that it's never a bad idea to embrace those big changes, and take a risk here and there, as Chapdelaine has done by example over and over again. Yeah, I started, you know, with Beatles and Clapton and Hendrix. On the electric? On the electric, right. Nice. Yeah, I never played a classical guitar until I got to college. I started playing classical guitar when I started college as well. And if you're coming from a rock background, your left hand feels fairly good, but your right hand has to play a lot of catch-up. The odds are not good, you know. It's, the train is left, and you got to run and try to catch it. And what, what converted you over? What caused the change? Literally, uh, I had a girlfriend who was going to go to Florida State to, you know, to study. She, yeah. was, she was an artist. And I was going to go to the West Coast and be a rock star. And she said, well, why don't you go to Florida State with me? You can major in guitar. And, you know, that was one of the first programs in the world. And so I showed up. I'd learned a, a Renaissance piece from Tab in Guitar Player magazine. Like a Dowland or somebody? Yeah, yeah. And so I auditioned and got in. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, I've been fooling people my whole life. <laughs> well then, I mean, how long was it before that first GFA? You were the first winner, right? Yeah, I, I converted in 1974 at Florida State to be a classical guitarist. And the first GFA that I won, it was 82. No, it happened pretty quick, but I won my first like major competition, I think three years after I started. It was the MTNA, the Music Teachers National Association. There used to be these big festivals, it was kind of like a GFA, but they used to have them every three years in Toronto. Like in 75, Elliot won third, Barweka won second, 
and Leisner tied with for second, and Sharon Isbin won first. It was a really good competition. But yeah, so then I thought I was kind of retired from competitions after that. After GFA or after No, Toronto? after Toronto. And then I thought I was too old. And then GFA came out, and I heard rumors about this thing, so I sent in my tape, and pow, awesome. I won. What was your rep? When I took up classical guitar in 74, that's all I did. You know, I was one of those people who even sort of like sold all his old records and all of my gear. And I lived in it completely until really maybe 10 years ago. I started thinking, eh, it's not enough. You know, I always felt like, like the help, the hired help that came in through the back door but somehow ended up in the party. So, so my feet were always trying to lead me back to the other, the other kind. About 15 years later, Michael wins another major competition, one usually reserved for steel string guitarists, the National Fingerstyle Championship. That was 98. And certainly I thought I was done with competitions by then. You know, in the 90s I was getting a little uneasy about my career as a classical guitarist. It didn't seem like it was enough, and so I was looking around anyway. But one thing I would see, like in all these guitar trades, yeah. like guitar player, guitar, acoustic guitar, there'd be a lot of these stars on the back cover, you know, selling some <laughs> product. And they all had this credential, National Finger Picking Champion. Those guys are getting a lot of work. I think I need to win that. <laughs> So I found out where it was, you know, how to enter and all that, and so I went out there and won it. Your compositions are with a mixture of stuff, some of these great arrangements that you do? Actually, you know, I snuck in the back door of that one, too, because the thing is almost always finger pickers, you know, Chet, Merle, and stuff like that. And I snuck in and played classical and won. I played two of my compositions, which are, you know, kind of, they're kind of hip sounding, you know, they don't sound like Bach, they sound like someone who's heard Bach, but someone who's heard the Almond Brothers too. Yeah. So I played two of my pieces, and then I played two classical things that are fun. I played, you know, El Colibri? Yeah. By, yeah, I played that. El Colibri means the hummingbird. That one in particular is by Julio Sagreda. No, on classical. On classical. So you yeah. walked into a steel string <laughs> on the nylon. Yes. <laughs> Isn't that cheating? Yeah, well, I don't know. It's. It, <laughs> I, I don't know if they even knew because the judges are in a different building listening on, uh, they have a stereo. Okay, They listen and you're to Right, so they can't know who you are. And did you switch guitars at some point? No, but, but I think if you play it right, you know, and you make it sound good, you don't notice what it is. You just no, say, wow, that's a guitar, it sounds yeah. good. Yeah. So I played that, and I played uh, a Venezuelan waltz. Well, Lotto, yeah. Which one? El Matabino. Yeah, da, da, da. yeah. yeah, yeah that's <laughs> Yeah, and they, they gave me the prize. I was that so shocked. I was so killer. shocked. And it worked, you know, I got a lot of press after that. I got, I got with some, uh, you know, some music companies and got a lot of mojo out of that. Went all over the world with Yamaha. You know, just going that little bit out of your comfort zone makes a huge difference. It did, yeah. yeah. 
Chaplin is currently on the faculty of the University of New Mexico, where he heads the guitar department. And in 2007, he released a series of musical portraits of New Mexico, titled Land of Enchantment. We're going to hear one of his compositions off that album, Sol y Cerveza, or Sun and Beer. Virtually the entire work floats on top of an ostinato in one of the most common Latin American rhythms, which some people refer to as 3-3-2, because the beats can be divided into 3 eighths plus 3 eighths plus 2 eighths. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two. Another way to think about it is a great way of syncopating something in four. One, two, and three, four, one, two, and three, four, one. So he's got this really rhythmic ostinato through the entire work. So by the way, just continuing our music lesson for a second, an ostinato comes from the Italian word for obstinate, which totally makes sense since it's a repeating musical idea. And this musical idea is usually found in the bass line. In Ravel's famous piece Bolero, it's an ostinato of just two notes. Speaking of obstinate, that one repeats for a good 10 minutes or so. Okay, so now that our music lesson is done, let's hear Chapdelaine's piece, Sol y Cerveza. Thank you. 
When I saw Michael play at this year's GFA, I was really impressed with his arrangements of these great rock and roll classics. So I asked him about his approach to arranging these. You know, when I do a cover, my intention is very much like a nerdy classical musician. I want to be as true to the original as I can. But when I do a cover, I'm going to make it sound mostly like the version that was popular that I grew up with. So when I did come together, I thought, if I'm going to do this song, there's a couple things that have to be there. Obviously, that's got to be there. And then I thought, well, the tom-tom thing is no problem because you just tap the top and move towards the lower bounce and it gets deeper so it sounds like you're going to a floor tom. The hi-hat thing at the beginning, I needed some metallic-y, quick speaking sound. Yeah, just tap the nail on the side. You know, what I'm trying to do is not be an exact jukebox. I'm trying to suggest what it was. I try when I can to make the guitar sing like the singer. In fact, I just did a, uh, I just did a cover of Randy Newman's song, Our Town, that James Taylor sang. I wanted to play that song, but I also wanted to learn how to make melodic moves like James Taylor sings. Long ago, but not so very long ago. I spent four months doing that. The way that he bends notes, the way he approaches a note, you know, through a glissando or through a pagiatura. So that's what I'm trying to do melodically. You know, the textural issue is one thing, like the, the percussion stuff I talked about. But then I also want to make it sound like the singer. It was your town. Okay, so that James Taylor recording isn't quite done yet, but I'm of course going to play you Come Together, originally by the Beatles, and you can also hear some of that vocal quality Chapter Lane strives for in this cover of Nora Jones's Come Away With Me.
changed is the the nylon world has come a little closer to the other side yeah you're right I was straddling two worlds but one of the worlds shifted a little bit towards the center it's just guitar yeah we're not like a bunch of ancient druids you know with special codes and yeah it's just music and we play it on guitar 40s are gone you can't be it's not Perlman anymore you just can't you know that even he you know I think he's lightened up and 
doesn't wear a tuxedo every time. Yeah, I pretty much play barefoot. If it's really cold, I'll wear shoes. Yeah, it's just, it, it feels right. I mean, I grew up in Florida and we didn't wear shoes. We wore them to church and to school. And that was it. That was it. You know, I think I first thought of it back when I was searching for this way out of being a classical guitarist. Do you remember Otmar Liebert? I went to see him because he was so famous. And I thought, you know, I'm just gonna go see what it is. So I went to a show in Albuquerque. He comes out and, you know, he's got a carpet. He comes out and he sits on the floor on a pillow, barefoot. That looks really comfortable. <laughs> so I've been doing it ever since. I think it was mid-90s, I got this huge spurt of writing. I wrote maybe 12 pieces, like in a few years. And you know, in those days, it was a bigger deal than it is now for a classical guitarist to be writing. And I just thought, you know, I was, I was done with it. You know, I, I joined the company in 1974. You know, I cut my hair, I sold my surfboard, and I was a good soldier. And it was just a time bomb. You know, at some point, it was just, all right, this is not me. I don't do this, I'm done. Which was pretty weird to throw away all that, that time. But, but, you know, to some degree, my classical career sort of ended with the Segovia incident. Do you know about that? Well, you can see it on the web, too. There's a video of it. Yeah, it was in 1986. And this was the big one. Everyone is at USC. And uh, they sent out the word that if you're going to play in the class, and they chose 12 of us from, you know, the whole world. They chose 12 players. 12 players, yeah. And you had to play only Segovia-edited material, because in the past, you know, there had been trouble. So we were supposed to only play Segovia material. Okay, so I did. But you're not supposed to change his fingerings, no matter what. Anything but that. One moment, one moment. Is the transcription my transcription? But you are, are modify all the all the finger. Why? Just decisions I made. Do you think that is better? What you have found? Then why do you play it? I think it's good. Mm. <laughs> Continue. Listen, if you have to play my transcription, play my transcription. Otherwise, go to another person that made better competition than I. Fuera. Well, that was how the world was then. The whole thing was about playing for Segovia in hopes that he would write you one of those letters. I sincerely thought that Segovia would say to me, and I really mean this, you can laugh, but I thought Segovia would say, you know, I've been playing this music for 75 years. Obviously, you play it differently, but I like the way you do it. So what did he say? Well, he finally threw me out of class in front of lots of people and three PBS cameras. And so the word went out after that that this cocky asshole from New Mexico had gone with the intention of pissing off Segovia. And after having succeeded at that, that I bragged to everybody about having done it. And if you go watch the film, you'll see there's no bragging. You know, I came here with just the desire to play for Segovia. And so I never got to. And he stopped me, and he stopped me. 
And I'd go home each night and I'd think, oh, what is wrong? And why is it this working? And then I figure, well, I'll just not play Ponce because he's so close to Ponce. I'll play Mallorca, thinking that I'd approached it the right way. Then the legendary third lesson happened. I played the first five notes. Stop. Why don't you use my fingerings? Well, I thought that the fingerings I did were good, but to Segovia, they weren't quite right. You know, we all learn what we learn, and we have to do our own decisions in our practice to find out what works for us. But sometimes, especially when you come to play for them, it would be nice to do a little homework. So, out. He finally hands me the score. Out. He said it in Spanish. He was so angry. And so everyone was very uncomfortable. <laughs> of course, not as much as I was. And so I practiced and listened and sang and, and did one of those mega days of practicing where my hands just hurt and I couldn't even play anymore. And so then, last night, just let me play. And, I don't know, everything's changed. So if you want to check out that whole exchange, type in Segovia Chapdelaine Masterclass and it should be the first one to come up. Literally, I saw my career end that year. Because I had a lot going on. Yeah. And uh, it just ended. Series canceled my shows. People wouldn't hire me anymore. People wouldn't call me back. It, my career ended. And it sort of limped along for another 10 years. But I knew it wasn't going to ever come back. So that, that was a big part of why I started writing and playing other stuff. One of the pieces Chapdelaine wrote in that period is titled Blue Chili. And like its title implies, it is a blues, as well as having some right hand tapping straight from the electric guitar tradition.
Today's podcast is brought to you in part by Audible.com. And for the listeners of All Strings Considered, Audible is offering a free audiobook download to check out their service. I would check out maybe Oliver Sacks or David Sedaris. Both of them are great. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash allstrings. I'm going to let Michael go ahead and introduce the last piece we're going to hear today, titled Portrait de Femme, from his album of the same name.
Well, it's called uh, Portrait de Femme, which is picture of a woman, portrait of a woman. I knew, I knew this woman and I was in her house and saw a picture of her on the coffee table of when she was like 15 and she was almost 40 when I knew her. And the picture was her when she was a barrel racer in Wyoming. And it was just such a, it was kind of a shock to see that because we, we rarely see people in earlier parts of their lives. There I was, you know, this 15 year old girl who was the, the same, but she was different. What is a barrel race? Uh, is that what it's called, barrel racing? No, no, on horses. So it's basically slalom on a horse. You ever been to a rodeo? You have to go to a rodeo because they do all these different events. It's basically a slalom. They, they have so many barrels to go around that they race for time. So, you know, I knew her quite well in the present. But then when I saw that picture, it sort of, artistically, it enticed me to project what she was like then, when she was 15. And then I felt like I had only part of it. So then I thought I would project also what she might be like much later. Yes. Well, the, the end is, of course, it's actually the beginning. They're, they're like mirrors. The beginning part, the first image in the triptych, is the same musical material as the end, but a little different. And in the end, it's down a major second. So instead of in A major, she's in G major later. You know, the piece, it wrote itself. I think I had that piece in a day or two. It probably took me four years to be able to play it. Really? It's hard. Is it? Yeah, it's pretty hard. It takes a lot of horsepower. Yeah. Physically as well as emotionally to make that happen. But I like the piece a lot. So, we're going to close this episode with Michael Chapdelaine's Portrait du Femme. But first, let me say thanks for listening to All Strings Considered. I'm your host, Scott Wolf. All Strings Considered is brought to you in part by Guitar Salon International, the world's largest selection of fine classical and flamenco guitars and accessories. Hey, if you get a chance, like the show on Facebook or follow on Twitter at All Strings. Until next time, it's been my pleasure to introduce you to Michael Chapdelaine and enjoy the music.
So I think the, the advice I would have is to be incredibly mindful from the beginning that this is an athletic endeavor we do, and you better do it right, because you can't do it for 10 years and then retire from the Lakers, you know, with a, a billion dollars and a drug problem. You know, you got to do this until you're dead.